Mike Check 717. This is Eric T. Jones, a.k.a. Brother Jones, and I just need five minutes of your time. Today, I will discuss the historical undercurrents of vaccine hesitancy via the United States Public Health Service syphilis study at Tuskegee. Some of you may know it as simply the Tuskegee syphilis study, but we need to recognize that this study was conducted by the government. The breakdown of this episode will consist of the following. A summary of the study that outlines specific details I feel are vital to understanding the study's historical legacy in the contemporary moment. This is the longest part of the episode. Afterward, I will evaluate how this legacy is representative of society's apathy toward black suffering in the form of excessive disease and death, offering insight into why some blacks are vaccine hesitant. Okay, we have a lot to get through, so let's begin. In February, the Ad Council and COVID Collaborative unveiled its COVID-19 vaccine education initiative called It's Up to You. This national initiative plans to educate people who are vaccine hesitant with a particular focus on, in their words, Black and Hispanic communities. The Ad Council's research discovered that communities of color, disproportionately impacted by COVID-19, didn't trust the government or the medical community. One of the reasons why people were undecided on getting vaccinated was because they didn't think they had enough information to decide whether vaccination was the best option for them. Hence, the Ad Council and COVID Collaborative started this initiative to build trust in the vaccines. Now, the question is, why does the black community distrust the government and medical community? There are many reasons why, but when it comes to public health, the United States Public Health Service syphilis study at Tuskegee from 1932 to 1972 is the quintessential example of how the government and medical community fostered this distrust. If you want to understand how this study happened, you should know what events led to its formation. Let's start with business tycoon and philanthropist Julius Rosenwald. He is known for developing Sears, Roebuck & Company into one of the most successful firms in the 20th century and building more than 5,000 schools in the rural South for blacks. These schools were known as Rosenwald schools. However, this project wasn't Rosenwald's idea. It was Booker T. Washington's, the founder of the Tuskegee Institute, where Rosenwald served on the board of directors. Following Washington's death in 1915, Rosenwald created the Julius Rosenwald Fund in 1917, which continued to build schools. In 1928, the fund reorganized and expanded its operations. This involved the appointment of the director of medical services, Michael Davis, who transitioned from the Rockefeller Foundation. If you research Davis, you'll see he was looking to find ways to make health care more accessible. In fact, he supported President Harry Truman's universal health care plan, which obviously never materialized. Anyhow, historian James H. Jones writes about Davis, and I'm quoting here, a medical reformer with a national reputation. Davis sought to make the medical system more efficient by defraying costs. His primary goal was to bring adequate health care to Americans who otherwise could not afford it. Keep this in mind. In 1929, Davis met with Dr. Hugh Cummings, the Surgeon General of the United States Public Health Service, regarding health programs he wanted to implement in the rural South. Cummings informed Davis of a study conducted at the Delta and Pine Land Company in Bolivar County, Mississippi, 
where the United States Public Health Service administered Wasserman tests on 2,000-plus blacks. Side note, Wasserman tests detect antibodies for syphilis. Moving along, they found that nearly 25% tested positive for syphilis. Cummings wanted to use Bolivar County as a case study to illustrate the effectiveness of a treatment program. This piqued Davis's interest, and he ultimately secured funding for the program. Following the program's conclusion, the United States Public Health Service submitted a proposal to the Rosenwald Fund to expand it, resulting in syphilis control demonstrations in various locations throughout the South, including Macon County, Alabama, where Tuskegee is located. Out of all the locations, the data suggested that Macon County had the highest prevalence of syphilis. But due to the Great Depression and the Roosevelt Fund pulling its funding as a result, the demonstrations ended, and the idea of transitioning into a comprehensive treatment program for the long term became highly unlikely. This is where the story should end. But the United States Public Health Service decided to continue their work in Macon County, and it came with a twist. Instead of offering treatment for syphilis, they initiated the Tuskegee Study of Untreated Syphilis in a Negro Male. The United States Public Health Service never informed the men they had syphilis. They told them they had bad blood, a term blacks in Tuskegee used to describe a host of ailments. Each year, the United States Public Health Service physicians came to Macon County to examine the men. They thought they were receiving treatment for bad blood. Little did they know, they were registered for a study they never consented to. The United States Public Health Service was only concerned with keeping track of these men so they could perform autopsies to evaluate the effects of untreated syphilis. You may be asking yourself, why would they do that? Well, there was a prevailing belief in medicine that the pathology of syphilis differed between blacks and whites. But this belief wasn't novel because the idea of racial difference harks back to slavery. Historian Renal Holgarth discusses this extensively in her book, medicalizing blackness. I encourage you to check out her work. Now, historians generally attribute Dr. Talaferro Clark as the architect behind the study. At the study's inception, he was the director of the United States Public Health Service Division of Venereal Diseases, and archival records demonstrate this link. However, Dr. Thomas Parent, who preceded Clark as the director, has become a person of interest due to a 1932 memo he authored. Regarding Macon County, he writes, If one wished to study the natural history of syphilis in the Negro race uninfluenced by treatment, this county would be an ideal location for such a study. Perrin also succeeded Dr. Hugh Cummings as the Surgeon General of the United States Public Health Service. He served in this position from 1936 to 1948, and given his previous work in Tuskegee, he was likely well aware of the study. For instance, in a 1932 letter Cummings wrote to Robert Russell Moton, the second president of the Tuskegee Institute, he writes, Side note, he's trying to convince Moton that the study has scientific merit. Okay, he writes, It is expected the results of this study may have a marked bearing on the treatment or conversely, the non-necessity for treatment of cases of latent syphilis. If Perrin's successor advocated for the study, it's reasonable to presume that Perrin knew what was going on. Plus, he believed in the idea of racial difference, even though to his credit, 
He acknowledged socioeconomic conditions as the driver for racial health inequality. In Perrin's book, Shadow on the Land, Syphilis, the White Man's Burden, published in 1937, five years after the study began, he writes, The Negro is not to blame because his syphilis rate is six times that of the white. He was free of it when our ancestors brought him from Africa. It is not his fault that the disease is biologically different in him than in the white, that his blood vessels are particularly susceptible so that late syphilis brings with it crippling circulatory diseases. The key phrase in this quote is late syphilis, or what Cummings referred to as latent syphilis, because the men in this study were believed to be in the latent stage. Why is this important? Because the United States Public Health Service claimed that the latent stage was untreatable, despite publishing a paper in 1932 advocating for treatment in the latent stage. Unfortunately, this didn't apply to blacks. What's interesting about Clark and Perrin is that they were the ones who submitted the proposal to the Rosenwald Fund that established the syphilis control demonstrations. Yet, their legacies are intertwined with a study that purposely withheld treatment from men suffering from syphilis. Keep in mind, this study was originally supposed to last for less than a year. Instead, it lasted 40 years. During that period, penicillin was determined to be a cure for syphilis in 1943. United States Public Health Service was administering it in its treatment centers, but withheld it from the men because they wanted to continue the study. During that period, the Nuremberg Code in 1947 instituted ethical principles for biomedical research following the Nazi medical experiments conducted on Jews without their consent. The United States Public Health Service ignored the code and continued the study. During that time, a physician said in 1950, we now know where we can only surmise before that we have contributed to their ailments and shortened their lives. Still, the United States Public Health Service continued the study. In 1964, the Declaration of Helsinki followed up on the Nuremberg Code. Like 1947, the United States Public Health Service ignored the declaration and continued the study. In 1969, a group of physicians and scientists gathered at the CDC to evaluate the study only to recommend the study's continuation. But we shouldn't be surprised, because during that time, there were numerous reports on the study published in reputable medical journals failing to spark public outrage within the medical community. Public outrage wasn't sparked until Associated Press reporter Jean Heller exposed the study in 1972. What if the details of the study weren't leaked to the Associated Press? How long would the study have lasted? Historian Alan Brand writes, In retrospect, the Tuskegee study revealed more about the pathology of racism than it did about the pathology of syphilis, more about the nature of scientific inquiry than the nature of the disease process. The key phrase in this quote is the nature of scientific inquiry. Because quite frankly, the United States Public Health Service syphilis study at Tuskegee isn't abnormal. Medical ethicist Harriet Washington's book, Medical Apartheid, discusses various examples of medical experimentation inflicted upon blacks throughout history, from the colonial era to the contemporary era. Tuskegee is just one historical flashpoint among many. Going back to the Ad Council and COVID Collaboratives, it's up to you initiative. They helped produce a short video that featured descendants of the men in the study who cautioned people who used the study as a justification for vaccine hesitancy. 
they note a clear difference between the study and COVID-19 because unlike the study, black people are being offered treatment for COVID-19. Although I agree with the descendants, I'll add the study represents more than the men in Tuskegee being withheld treatment. It represents black people who don't have access to health care. It represents black people who have health care access, but it isn't quality health care. It represents black people who are treated by, let's call it what it is, racist health care practitioners that may or may not even know they're racist. It represents the fact that our society only cares about black health when it impacts public health. Vice News also produced a short video that discussed the study within the context of vaccine hesitancy. In the video, Vice News correspondent Alexis Johnson spoke with Tuskegee resident Scott Muhammad, who's vaccine hesitant. He claims he doesn't have evidence that the vaccine will save him, and he's concerned about the potential long-term effects. Aside from Muhammad's vaccine hesitancy, he said something that resonated with me during his conversation with Johnson. He said, People are now using words like disparities. These disparities are the reason why we're dying in these numbers. But nobody's trying to address the disparities. They're just telling you, take the vaccine. It'll be all right. Though Johnson acknowledged the need to address the racial health inequality Muhammad highlighted, she said, but COVID needs to be addressed now. So what do you think about that? Muhammad's response was simply this. So you're going to make COVID shut up? And then what? You're back to square one. He goes on to argue that people had issues before the pandemic and they will persist after the pandemic. I think it's wrong to judge Muhammad because he raises a significant point that captures the reason why blacks don't trust the government and medical community. Before I say this, I need to put out a disclaimer. I know there are some good people in the government and medical community, but I say this with the utmost confidence because I can back this argument. I got articles and books for days. Anyway, the government and medical community have never given blacks a reason to trust them regarding their health. For example, they're disproportionately relegated to communities that suffer from polluted air, contaminated water, and food insecurity, and we wonder why racial health disparities exist? Scholars David R. Williams and Jaquita Collins wrote an article two decades ago illustrating how residential segregation is a fundamental cause of racial health disparities. Yet the government and medical community, for the most part, ignores it and turns a blind eye to the excessive disease and death that ravages blacks, indicating that black death does not matter unless it impacts public health. This is the legacy of the United States Public Health Service syphilis study at Tuskegee and one of the reasons why blacks distrust for the government and medical community has poured over into vaccine hesitancy.